0: And as I was preparing for this teaching this week, <clears throat> I was reflecting over the last few times that I had the opportunity to teach. Last year, um, we spent some time going through uh, the book of 1 Kings, specifically studying the prophet Elijah. Now, Elijah was a great man of faith, and God did some amazing things through him, Uh, some amazing miracles. God used him to point people, the nation of Israel, back to Jesus to defeat the prophets of Baal. And uh, just such a great story of faith when you study the person of Elijah and how God used him. And, uh, you know, I get to come up here and teach about three, four, five times a year. And and whenever I get to do that, typically I'm sharing how God is working in in my life. You know, over the past year, I would say it's been a uh, kind of a a pursuit and a study of mine to understand more about faith and what it truly means to step out and trust God and faith. And, And I think for a lot of us, we tend to pray and ask God for things, but there's so many times in Scripture where people, you know, asked and received because they asked with, with faith and without doubt. And for so many of us, when we go to God and we say, God, I, I hope you will, or, or please do this for me, it's like you're letting that seed of doubt into your life. And so I was like, what does it take to be truly filled by the Spirit and truly dependent upon God and His will and His plan For my life, And so that's where these teachings have all come from. It's been kind of what God has been showing me in my life and the steps that I need to do, the areas that I need to improve in my life. And so I think there's something in this for all of us as we uh, look to kind of step out in faith and trust him in our circumstances. But before we jump into 2 Kings chapter three, I just wanna catch you up to where we're at uh, here in the story. So it's been a while since we've looked at this. So uh, the prophet Elijah um, was uh, kind of in, in, I will say in power being used by God under the reign of Ahab who was the king of Israel, and uh, God raises up Elijah, performs some great acts through him, most namely, like I just said, defeating the prophets of Baal at the, at the top of Mount Carmel. It says they called the prophets of Baal together. They said, summon your God to send fire, destroy your sacrifice, and of course, they didn't do that, um, but then it says that Elijah calls upon God to send fire to consume uh, the sacrifice, and God sends fire, consumes the sacrifice, consumes the altar, and, uh, and he defeats the prophets of Baal. And so this greatest moment of triumph in the prophet Elijah's life, okay, is followed immediately by the next study. We take a look at his greatest failure in life. And for so many of us, our greatest triumphs are often followed by our greatest failures because so we take our eyes and our focus of what, where it needs to be. During those good times, it's really easy to get comfortable and forget keeping our focus on God. And that's what happens to Elijah. It says that he defeats the prophets of Baal. And then shortly after, it says that Queen Jezebel comes out and says, I'm going to kill Elijah. And so Elijah, rather than trusting God, who just did this amazing thing through Elijah, says that he runs off into the wilderness. He goes out there and he literally prays for God to take his life. And so he falls into this great depression and literally just wants to die. And so we know that God, that wasn't his plan for Elijah. But instead, he says, Elijah, I want you to get up from here, and I want you to go and find Elisha. I will screw those names up today, so just bear with me. But he goes and finds the prophet. He goes and finds Elisha. At this point, wasn't a prophet. He was just a guy. And he wants to kind of pass his ministry off to him and begin mentoring and grooming him. And I didn't put this on your outline but in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 9 through to 20, it says, So Elijah departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, while he was plowing with the 12 pairs of oxen before him, and he with the 12." And Elijah passed over him, and he threw his mantle on him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah. So Elijah is obedient to God. He goes out and finds Elisha. The thing I love about this story is Elisha was just a guy. He's out there plowing his fields. He's out there with his oxen doing his thing, and it says Elijah comes out, throws his mantle, which would have been like a cape, uh, over his shoulders, and it says that Elisha drops everything and runs after Elijah. And so there's this calling on his life and he recognizes that immediately in the moment and drops everything to follow Elijah. So just an ordinary guy with an ordinary job, but God's gonna do extraordinary things through him. And then in verse 21 of chapter 19, it says, he took the pair of oxen, he sacrificed them, he boiled their flesh with the implements of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and ministered to him. The other thing we see about Elisha is there was a 100% commitment from Elisha. When Elijah came and said, it's time for you to go, it says he dropped, he ran, he literally took the implements, which would be everything he uses to plow, all of his tools, he sets them on fire, uses the fire to cook the oxen, feeds his people, and says, all right, let's go. So there was nowhere for him to turn if this didn't go well. But he, in his mind, had no doubt in his mind that this is where God was calling him to go. So when we talk about spirit-filled faith, it is 100% commitment It's taking these things and putting them in the past. It's setting them on fire. It's cooking it and giving it out and moving forward to where God is calling you to step out and go in faith. And that's what Elisha did on that day. He gives up everything to follow God and God honors that. And so 2 Kings chapter 3, this is kind of towards the beginning of of Elisha's time. Elijah was just taken up into heaven. It says Elisha comes down. And and, uh, during that time, there's a couple of guys we will be introduced to here in the first couple of verses that kind of sets up uh, today's teaching. Now, there are three distinct parts of 2 Kings chapter 3, and we're going to look at all three of those. Um, But in the first one, um, we are introduced to the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern king of Judah. So let's take a look at 2 Kings chapter 3, starting in verse 1. And we'll start there. So it says, Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and his mother, for he put away the sacred pillar of Baal, which his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made in Israel sin. He did not depart from them. So we're introduced to these two guys. Jehoram is the king of Israel, which is the northern kingdom. And then you have Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, the southern kingdom. And it says, Jehoram did evil in the eyes of the Lord, though not like his mom and dad. So he was like bad, not quite as bad as they have in Jezebel, but pretty bad, because he did get rid of the altar of Baal. That's good. But then it says he continued the sins of Jeroboam. Jeroboam was one of the first kings of Israel that introduced idol worship into Israel. And so when he introduced idol worship into Israel, it says that that Jehoram said, we're not going to worship Baal, but all these other guys are still kind of open for worship. And so he did evil, not quite as bad as Ahab and Jezebel, but it was still pretty bad. He still led the nation of Israel to sin. And so on the screen, I'm going to put up a map. Just to give us a point of reference of where we're talking about today. So, the kingdom of Israel is up there in blue on the north side. That's where Jehoram was king and reigning over Israel. And then just below that, there's that brownish, goldish area. That's the kingdom of Judah. So, 10 tribes made up the northern uh, country of Israel, two tribes made the kingdom of Judah, and that's where Jehoshaphat would have been king during that time. And then you have all the surrounding areas, which again will come into play. Today as well. So, Jehoram is the king of the northern area. His father was Ahab. The Bible says he was one of the most wicked kings of Israel. His mom was Jezebel, who was, of course, a wicked queen. Throughout Scripture, if you're referred to as a Jezebel, or today you're referred to as a Jezebel, not exactly a good thing. That stems from this story. So Jezebel, her name kind of goes down in infamy. Thousands of years later as something that you don't want to be called. So don't be that person. But this is the, these are the people that were directly influencing Jehoram's life, his mom, his dad. And then Jehoshaphat is the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And the Bible really doesn't say a whole lot about him other than he kind of goes with the flow. Okay, so he's a, overall a decent guy, but he kind of doesn't have a spine or a backbone. You kind of, we'll pick that up in today's story. He kind of just does whatever people want him to do. So he loves God and he worships God, but if, if you wanna worship false gods, then that, that's, that's your journey and you're gonna do that, that's okay. And so he kind of didn't really ever commit anything. And so we're going to see that come in today's story. So we're introduced to these two kings that are overseeing Israel and Judah. And so the first part of today's teaching, I simply called Jehoram and Jehoshaphat's five keys to making bad decisions. Okay, And here's why we're going to take a look at this. This isn't something for you to take home and apply to your life. I just want to make sure that's evidently clear today. Oftentimes we come here, we find application, but this is a perfect example of what not to do in our lives. And so these two guys come up with this great idea through a series of bad decisions, and obviously it heads south pretty fast. So the first thing that we learn from these two fine gentlemen, the first key to making bad decisions, is that you're influenced by other people who make bad decisions. You're influenced by other people who make bad decisions. The book of Proverbs chapter 14 verse 7 says, leave the presence of a fool or you will not discern words knowledge. You have to examine your direct sphere of influence. Do you have people speaking into your life, people speaking into your circumstance, into your situation that are not speaking wisdom, that are not pointing you back to God, that are fools, that are pulling you away from God? Or do you have people that are speaking to your situation that you say, you have a life worth emulating. You've made, you have a track record of good decisions. I'm going to help, you know, lean on you for help and trust you. Or are you trusting the people that are making bad decisions? Jim Rohn, who was a leadership kind of guru, one of the things he was quoted as always saying is you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And so when you look at those people in your life, those are the people that you will become like. Are the five people closest to you the people that you want to become like? If they are that's great if they're pointing you in the right direction. If they're not, then you need to change your sphere of influence. You need to find people that are going to point you to Jesus, that are going to help you grow in your faith, help you move forward in your faith, not hold you back and give you bad wisdom. So verse four continues on. It says, "'Now Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, "'and he used to pay the king of Israel 100,000 lambs "'and the wool of 100,000 rams. "'But when Ahab died, "'the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel.' And, the King of, and King Jehoram went out into Samaria at that time and mustered all of Israel. So Israel, as we know, has always been in conflict. The Middle East to this day is always kind of a mess. Tensions are always high, and it was no different back in this day. So Moab um, was, was to their east, and you had Edom to the south. The Philistines were kind of around. And so there was always this tension, and they are always kind of on the brink of war, waiting for something to kind of set them off. And it's very much the same way today when you look at the Arab nations that surround Israel, Iran, Iraq, Syria, all of them are kind of always on edge and waiting to attack and waiting for something to set them off. There's always been tensions. And the same thing in this story, Um, there's tensions that are on the rise. You see, for years, Moab had kind of paid like uh, a payment to Israel to say, kind of leave us alone. It's 100,000 sheep, 100,000 wolves of rams, and we'll give you that if you just kind of keep the peace. But when Ahab died, it says that his oldest son came to power And he ruled for a few years. And it's during that time that Misha stops kind of making those payments. So Moab is no no longer paying for that protection. And then Jehoram comes to power and he's kind of ready to make things right in his eyes. And it says that Moab, basically Misha, the king of Moab has no uh, respect for Jehoram. And so doesn't keep making the payments. And so Jehoram is ready to do something about it. So tensions are high, war is on the horizon. They're heading in that direction. And in verse seven, it says this, then he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, saying, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? And he said, I will go up, underline, I am as you are, your people as your, uh, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. So Jehoram is not happy. He's not getting respected. He wants to make things right for his country, and so he's very frustrated and angry. And on your outline, the second key to making bad decisions is you make decisions out of anger. You make decisions out of anger. Now, you don't have to raise your hand, but let me ask you, how many guys have ever made a decision out of anger before? Yeah. Okay, a few of us have probably been in that boat before. And if I were to ask you same individuals who are willing to admit that, everybody else in here is just lying, but, by the way, but that's Okay. <laughs> if I were to ask you how that decision ended up for you, I think most of us or all of us would probably say it probably didn't end up that well. You see, when we make a decision out of anger, your your rationality is clouded. You uh, can't really think straight and you tend to make the, the decision in the moment out of anger rather than the, the one that's going to trust God, right? That's going to or maybe work through that situation or step back from that situation. And, um, you know, I have you know probably one or two examples of of this in my life that I could share with you but one 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 of my <clears throat> one of my favorites and i 've shared this before so if you 've heard it i 'm sorry but one, one of one of the uh, probably best examples I could share with you is I was a teenager in high school and uh I remember wanting to go to a concert on a Sunday. And so I go to my parents and say, hey, I'm, I'm gonna go to this concert. Can you, will you let me go? And they said, no, Sunday, church day, you're, you're going to church. Now, typically it wouldn't have been that big of a deal. They probably would have let me take a Sunday off to go. But at this point in my life, I wasn't exactly making the best decisions about my life. And so they kind of made it a precedent that, nope, you need to go to church. You're not missing uh, church today. And so I said, no, I'm, I'm gonna go to the concert. I'm 13, I'm, I'm an adult. And... Uh, <laughs> you know, put your foot down. And, and again, you know how that goes. Not well. And so we, I would say we went back and forth a little bit. And, uh, and then finally I said, well, I'm not going to church. So that's that. And they said, my dad said, that's fine. You can go to your room and you can stay there. You better be there when you get home, uh, when we get home. But we're going to church and we'll deal with this when you get back. But you're going to be in trouble for a while. And I'm like, fine. You know, so I go to my room. Well, that's not exactly true. So I turn around angry, my parents leave the house. And at the time we were in the middle of doing some small renovations type stuff. So there's stuff laying around and uh, and so I turn around and what do I see? Lo and behold, there's a gallon of paint on the ground. And so <clears throat> wisdom would say, go to your room. Anger would say, kick said bucket of paint out of anger, right? And so what do I do? I turn around, I kick the bucket of paint, which by the way, you ever need to paint a room fast? That's the way to do it. Because <laughs> We're talking 25-foot spread of paint all over the wall, the TV, the entertainment center, the carpet, the tile, the coffee table, the cat. I mean, anything within a 25-foot radius of this thing was covered in white paint. And uh, so I kicked it, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. And so my, my, my sister literally was upstairs, walks down looks, down, looks down at me. She turns around and walks right back in her room. She's <laughs> like, I want nothing to do with this. And so <clears throat> I'm like, what am I going to do? And it gets better because about that time, my dad comes walking back through the front door. And I'm like, So I turn around and he sees I have this look of like sheer panic and fear on my face. And he walks in, you know, cool as a cucumber, sees it, and says, I'll be right back. And so he walks out the front door. And, uh, and, and wives, you tell me how this would go over. So he goes up to my mom and says, You know, why don't you just go to church? I'm going to stay here with TJ. Everything's fine. You just go ahead and go. And, uh, and she's like, something's up. So mom comes walking in, sees the paint, starts crying. Everything, I mean, it gets from bad to worse. And, uh, and so, I mean, for years, you could have come into our house and seen remnants of paint all over some of our finest items uh, from the time that I redecorated. But that's what anger does to us. It's it, it's simply it overwhelms you, and and you want to act in what you feel you know is going to let that anger out, and you tend to make really poor decisions when you make a decision out of anger, much like kicking a bucket of paint. So. Those are the times that you want to think back on when you remember uh, those things. You want to grow from those points. Well, Jehoram is at this point where he is angry because he's not being respected. He's not getting what he feels he is due to receive. And so he's at the point where he's going to go start a war to correct the wrongs and to make things right for his nation. And so he goes down to Jehoshaphat and says, will you come fight with me? Jehoshaphat says, I am as you are. My people are your people. My horses are your horses. What's yours is mine. Let's go to war. I'll go fight with you. Now, the interesting thing is, Um, that sounds really familiar because Jehoshaphat's been in this situation before. When Jehoram's dad Ahab was king of Israel, it says that he wanted to go fight against Ramoth Gilead. And so he goes down to Jehoshaphat and says, hey, I wanna go fight, why don't you join me? And I didn't put this on your outline, but track with me here, we're gonna take a little detour to look at Jehoshaphat the first time this played out. So it says, and King Ahab said to Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to battle at Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people are your people and my horses are your horses. So the exact same thing he would say years later to Jehoram when he comes down. And a little spoiler alert for you, it didn't really work out the first time. So it's probably not gonna play out well the second time either. So he failed to remember the time that he said this exact thing when somebody tried to get him to come go to war with him. Sure, my people are your people, let's go to war. And it didn't play out well. So on your outline, the key to making bad decisions here, the third one we see is that we don't learn Past mistakes. You don't learn from past mistakes. Some of our greatest lessons in life are learned when we kick buckets of paint, right? You look back at that, you always remember that as a time that you made a mistake and how you grew from that, and hopefully the lessons you learn from that, so you don't make the same mistake again. Now, Jehoshaphat here went to war against better wisdom years ago with Ahab, and it didn't end well. And here he is years later with Ahab's son, Jehoram, who comes and says, let's go to war against better wisdom. And he says, sure, let's do it. Let's go to war. He failed to learn from previous mistakes. And so, like I said, Jehoshaphat uh, was not the smartest guy, not the sharpest tool in the shed, if you will. You know, you kind of see that throughout scripture. And and again, this story is one example of that. Well, at this time, they go summon a prophet, Ahab and Jehoshaphat, say, we're going to bring a prophet in and see what what God has to say um, before we go to war. Because they were kind of getting ready, and Jehoshaphat said, maybe we should check with God first. And so, They bring in the prophet. The prophet basically says, don't go to war. This is not what God wants for you. In fact, if you do, Ahab, you are going to die if you take that step. So you'd think at this point, they turn around and go home, right? Wrong. So they decide, hey, let's go against God's wisdom. We're gonna go ahead and go to war anyways. And so it says in chapter 22, verse 30, up on the screen, it says, then the king of Israel, Ahab, again, we said Jehoshaphat's not a smart guy. And this is a great example of that. Ahab says to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you put on your robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now, Ahab went to Jehoshaphat and said, I want you to go to war with me. And Jehoshaphat's like, sure, I'll do it. Now, Ahab was going to war with Ramoth Gilead because they wanted to kill Ahab. And so before they go into war, Ahab's like, look, I got a great idea. Why don't you dress like a king? I'm gonna put on just some warrior clothes and go out and fight with my people. And so you stick out like the sore thumb. And what does Jehoshaphat say? great idea. That sounds fantastic. Let's do it. And so he puts on his robes and they, they go to war. Again, you're just not thinking clearly. Uh, not exactly the smartest move when, you, when you're the guy's trying to be killed and you're trying to dress like that person. But on your outline, the fourth key to making bad decisions is you listen to unwise counsel. Ahab obviously did not have the best interests of Jehoshaphat in mind. But Jehoshaphat still listened and chose to put on the, the, the robes of royalty and go out into battle, not thinking about the target that he was putting on his own back. But like I said, this situation wouldn't end well. Um, in fact, Proverbs 13, 20, it says this, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. And so again, you walk with the wise, you reap wisdom. You walk with fools, you suffer harm. Harm. And so, the end of that story, before we jump back into 2 Kings, it says this Now, a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel in the joint of the armor. That was King Ahab. So, the prophet had warned Ahab, If you go to war, you're going to die. At this point, the two nations weren't even fighting yet, but it says one guy randomly shoots an arrow up in the air and it happens to hit Ahab between the joint of the armor, a weak spot in his armor, and it pierces him. And it says that Ahab bled out and died in his chariot as a result of that. So, they choose to go to war. They seek God. God says, don't do it. They choose to do it anyways. And so they kind of reaped what they sowed there. They kind of had to live with the consequences of making a decision against what God wanted for their lives. And so when we jump back to 2 Kings chapter three, okay, so Jehoshaphat didn't learn the lesson the first time. He's getting ready to go to battle with Jehoram years later. And in 2 Kings chapter three, verse eight, they're trying to get a plan together. And here's what they say. It says, Jehoshaphat said, which way shall we go up? And he answered, Jehoram answered, the way of the wilderness of Edom. Know that there is still no mention of God in the plan. So they sought God the first time. He said, don't do it. They sought God late before, but this time they're still trying to come up with their own plan and they're not seeking God and what God wants them to do. And so on your outline, the fifth key to making bad decisions is you don't seek God first. You don't seek God first. The key to making great decisions always starts with God, seeking Him in prayer, seeking His wisdom, seeking His best for your circumstances, always looking to Him first, not halfway through the story, not the end of the story when we're in trouble, um, like we'll see in a moment, but you're looking to God first. And so Jehoram and Jehoshaphat decided to come up with their own plan to go to war and to defeat the Moabites without seeking God first and what he wanted to do with this situation. So on your screen, here's the plan. <clears throat> on paper, it looks like a really good plan. So Jehoram comes up with this battle strategy. He says, look, I've got you on board. Edom, which is the country just to the south there, was kind of subject to the kingdom of Judah at this point. So they kind of had to do whatever Judah said. So um, Jehoshaphat goes to the king of Edom and says, hey, come to war with us. And they're like, okay. And so you have these three countries, Israel, Judah, and Edom. And what they're gonna do is they're gonna attack Moab from the south. The reason being, like I said, war was kind of on the horizon. Tensions were high. And so Moab would be sending their armies to that northern border to protect the border from an attack from Israel to the north. And so Je- Jehoram comes up with a pretty decent plan and says, we're gonna surprise them. We'll come through Judah, through Edom, and we'll hook around the Dead Sea and we're gonna attack <clears throat> the Moabites from the South. They'll never see it coming. So actually on paper, a pretty good strategy when you think about it, the element of surprise. And so they decide to do that. But again, whenever you choose to enact a plan, as good as you think it is, if God's not in it, it's not gonna work out to your benefit, okay? And so we'll see that play out here shortly. So in verse nine, It says, so the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and they made a circuit of seven days journey, and underlined, there was no water for the army or the cattle that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, alas, for the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And so the great plan that was kind of foolproof in their eyes, but they moved forward without God, fell apart about seven days into the journey when they realized we're in the middle of the desert with no water, and there's no water on the horizon. So how are we gonna give our guys water? How are we gonna give water to our cattle, our horses? How are we gonna survive out here without any water? So they said, surely God's bringing us out here to punish us and to kill us. So on your outline, I want you to write this down. The results of our bad decisions are that we live with the consequences. We live with the consequences. And I think this is where a lot of us uh, this right here is what stops most of us from taking a step of faith in the first place is, is A, the fear of the unknown, but maybe the fear of the consequences. That, you know, if I take a step and God doesn't show up, you know, what's going to happen to me? But we're talking about spirit filled faith, right? And so we have to erase that doubt from our thinking. We have to trust God. When we seek God first and we seek his plan and when we're following his will and his plan for our life, God will show up. And in fact, it says God will show up in ways that you can't even imagine. But God is gonna be there for you in your situation. Whatever circumstance you're facing today, whatever situation you're in, It says, let's not dwell on the circumstances of our past, but let's focus on the Jesus who came and died for us. Let's be defined by his love, his grace, his compassion, and what he wants for my life moving forward. And so we have to put our faith and our trust completely him. And him, so at this point in the story, you're gonna see Elisha uh, come into the picture. It says the kings are at, a, are at a loss for what to do. And so at this point, now that they're in trouble, as most of us do, we make a decision and uh, we get in trouble. And it's at that point we say, hey God, can you come and save the day? That's exactly what happens here. They call him in after the fact. But in verse 11, we'll see Elisha come into the picture. It says, but Jehoshaphat said, is there not a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? And one of the king of Israel's servants answered him, he said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat is here who used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. And this simply means he was mentored by Elijah. He served Elijah and uh, is now kind of taking over his ministry. Then verse 12, it says, Jehoshaphat said, underline the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And so now that they're in trouble, they start seeking God. But what we're gonna see through Elijah are these simple steps that he takes and, and how God can use you and work in your life when you totally trust him for the outcome, okay? And again, I think a lot of us, uh, we, we operate in fear and, and doubt. And again, that's where I tend to operate, right? Is you are, are asking God for healing, you're asking God for blessing, you're asking God to show, out, show up, but you're not believing and expecting that he will necessarily. There's always that, would he really show up for me? Would he really do that for me? And that's where that doubt creeps in. But it says Elisha's gonna live a life fully abandoned, gave up everything to follow him and 100% give himself to God. And so we're gonna learn some very simple steps from Elisha on how to have a spirit-filled faith. The first thing that we learn from Elisha, number one, is that the word of God is with you. If you're gonna have a spirit-filled faith, the word of God needs to be with you. Okay, notice that as soon as Jehoshaphat hears his name, he says the word of the Lord is with him. That's what defines Elisha's life. And I hope that for us, as followers of Jesus, it's the word of God that defines our life as well. When people think of you, do they think of you as the person that's giving biblical wisdom or are you somebody that's making bad decisions because you're not letting God's word penetrate your heart? And the Bible is very clear about the role that God's word plays in our life and how evident it is and how in our search situation, in our faith, we need to be speaking these words into our lives, into our friends' lives, and into our situation and in Psalm chapter one, verse one through three, on your outline, it says this, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit at the seat of scoffers, but in his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. It defines you. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit and its season and its leaf does not wither. And listen to this, whatever he does, he prospers when we allow the word of God into our lives, and we so let it into our hearts, and we're meditating on it day and night. You'll be like a tree firmly planted, firmly planted by the waters, and whatever you do, you will prosper. Okay, so Elisha was a man known for being in the word of God, and the word of God was with him. And so we have to be followers that are in the word of God and allowing those to penetrate our heart, meditating on it day. And night. So 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 13, it goes on to say, and uh, Elisha, like many of us, have that gift of a second language. Uh, for some of us, it's sarcasm. Elisha had that gift as well. You're gonna see it come out here a little bit. So it says, Elisha said to the king of Israel, what do I have to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. He says, look, you don't even love God. So why would I be here for you? What am I even doing here in front of you? Go to your gods and, and ask them for help. And it says, and the king of Israel said to him, no, for God has called these three kings together to give them into the hand of Moab. Elisha said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, that was something Elijah used to always say because he's making the point that even though I stand in the presence of three kings, I don't respond to you. is saying, I stand before God and ultimately I report to him. As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see you. So he makes it very clear that I'm not here for Jehoram. Jehoshaphat at least acknowledges God and worships him somewhat. Jehoram, you know, you're pretty much worthless and I wouldn't be here for you. God wants to do something here because Jehoshaphat at least had some faith to call upon Elisha to be here and intervene. And so he shows up to save the day. So number two, the second thing that we need to is to have spirit-filled faith is that we need to recognize the power and presence of God in our lives. We need to recognize the power and presence of God in our lives. It says, Jehoshaphat knows they have a need. God can meet that need. Calls on Elisha. Elisha comes and says, God will meet that need. And he speaks into that situation, but he's not going to do it on behalf of the guy that wasn't walking in faith, that wasn't trusting God. He's doing it because of the one that is. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we really believe that God will move on our behalf? Are we willing to Go to him and trust him and walk in faith, trusting that God's going to work in your situation, in your circumstance. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 5. It says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. We need to constantly be walking in the Spirit, walking in faith, and trusting God each step of the way. You know, for for believers, it's a it's a growth process, right? Elisha didn't become this great prophet. Overnight, it was, a, it was a years-long growth process of trusting and making decisions and taking steps of faith and growing into the prophet that he now was in this story. It's the same thing for us. You're not gonna get there overnight, but it's a lifelong pursuit of being like Jesus and taking steps of faith. And Paul says you need to be walking By the Spirit. And I love the analogy of walking for two reasons. The first one is there's nowhere that you can walk that He's not with you, right? So God is with us everywhere we go. No matter what situation you're walking through, no matter what decision you made yesterday that's affecting you today, God is still walking right by your side. It said in Psalms 139, verse 7, Where can I go from your Spirit or where can I flee from your presence? God is always with you. And the second thing we learn about walking in the Spirit is that walking. Gives the, the connotation that you are moving forward, right? You're taking steps and that you're not standing here in your faith, but you are walking in the Spirit. And so each of your paths directed by God, when you're walking in the Spirit, He is there with you. He is working on your behalf. And so we need to be asking ourselves, what was the last step of faith I took? What step of faith is God calling us to? I believe every single person in this room is being called to do something. For some of us, It might be looking back and saying, you know what? I need to be in God's word more. For some of us, it might be, I need to to pray more. I need to focus more on prayer. For some of us, it might be a big step of faith. God's calling you to do something that's absolutely scaring you to death, but you need to walk by the spirit, 100% committed and trusting him to move on your behalf with expectation, as we will see here shortly. So we need to be taking steps of faith, walking in the spirit, fully devoted to his will and trusting him for the outcome. And so one more takeaway from verse 14. And notice at the end there, it says, were it not as I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see you. See, some of us in here are, are asking God to come in and help us from, in a situation that we're in. But Isaiah says it this way. He says, behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so he does not hear. For some of us, we need to examine ourselves and see, is there something that I am doing or something that I'm not doing that God has called me to do that's keeping me from doing God's will or keeping God from moving in my situation? And so it's a simple reminder that we can't live life on our terms, doing the things we want to do apart from God's will, but then still trust God for the blessing, still trusting God to step and intervene when you want nothing to do with him. Again, Elisha says, Jehoram, he goes, you go to your gods. Those are the people that you trust. You don't trust God. Jehoshaphat trusts God. And so I will come and move on his behalf. In the same way in our lives, we can't be worshiping these gods over here and expect God to bless us. And help us in our situation. Just a quick reminder for us to always be examining ourselves as well, making sure that we are seeking God and living according to Him. In verse 15, it goes on, it says, But now, Elisha says, Now bring me a minstrel, which is a musician. And it came about that, underlined, when the minstrel played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. And so he seeks some music, uh, and it says that once the music started playing, then the hand of the Lord came upon him. There's something about music. That, that connects Elisha with God. It kind of opens up this opportunity for him to connect with God and God will share the word through him. Now I've asked Matthew, our worship pastor, to follow me around with a guitar and be my menstrual, but he has declined to do so, so far. So when I struggle in faith, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at you. I'm, I'm blaming you for my, my lack of faith at times because I need that music and that worship to move forward. But is what it is. But he seeks a minstrel to come and play some music so that he can connect with God. And so the third key to building our faith is keeping an attitude of worship. Keeping an attitude of worship. And music is a part of how we worship, of course. Music stirs our soul. There are over 400 references to music in scripture and over 50 direct commands for us to be worshiping and singing songs of praise to God in scripture. That's a lot. Over 50 times we are told to be singing praises to God. So we need to be in an attitude of worship. That's how we connect With God In Ephesians chapter five, Paul said, be filled with the spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. And on Sundays, that's why when you come in here, we we open up with music because it helps open up our soul. It stirs our soul, connects us with God and prepares us for the teaching of his word. And so when we come in and worship, there's a reason for that. And notice that as soon as he brings in the music and that happens, and it says at that point, then the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha and gave him a word. And then in verse six, Here's what he said. Elisha shares the word that God gave him here. He says, he said, thus says the Lord, make this valley full of trenches. For thus says the Lord, underline, you shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain. Yet that valley shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink both you and your cattle and your beasts. This is but the sight, a slight thing in the sight of the Lord. Underline, he will also give you the Moabites into your hand. Then you shall strike every fortified city and every choice city and fell every good tree, stop all springs of water, and mar every good piece of land with stones. And so there's some good news, bad news here for the Israelites. God says, I'm going to take care of you and provide what you need, but you have to take some steps to make that happen. Now, seven days, they're traveling through the desert. They're hot, they're tired, they're dehydrated, they need water. And God says, But first, in faith, you need to start digging some trenches. And if you dig the trenches, you'll then receive the blessing from God. You see, God's going to send the water. Had they chose not to take a step of faith and trust, they wouldn't have dug any trenches. The water just kind of would have gone right by. But since they dug the trenches and they stood out there and did that, God's going to fill all the trenches. And so number four, the fourth key to building our faith is that effective faith requires action. Effective faith requires action. James put it this way. He said, faith without works is dead. If you truly have faith, there is action that is a result of that. You are taking steps of faith. You are moving. You are being obedient to God. Even when you don't see the rain, you are preparing for the blessing. And for some of us, that's where we're at now. God is calling you to take a step of faith. God is calling you to move. He's calling you to action. And you're trying to decide if you're going to take that step. But some of you guys need to start digging trenches in your life, living in an expectant of God, what God wants to do in your life, expecting God to move, expecting the blessing, not focusing on the doubt, not the hope that it might happen, but believing that he will. And because we're not taking a step and we're not taking action, the blessing might pass us by. The other thing I love about this is that the amount of blessing they receive is directly dependent on the action that they take. So if they dig one hole, God's going to send the rain, it's going to fill the one hole. Now if they dig a hundred holes, they're going to have a hundred holes full of water. And so however much action, however much faith they choose to put into this situation directly affects the amount of blessing that they were about to receive. So Elisha tells them, you won't see the rain, but the water will come. Forget how tired you are, get to work. Hebrews 11 says it like this, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. The word assurance means a firm foundation. The word conviction is something tested and proven. It means there's no room for doubt in faith. He says, you fully believe that God is gonna show up. He's going to send the rain. He's going to fill the trenches. There is no room for doubt. Some of us need to get dirty and start digging our trenches. And so quickly as we wrap up, in verse 20, the results of our faith. So when we choose to walk by the spirit and walk in spirit-filled faith and trust God with the outcome, here's what happens in this situation. It says, it happened in the morning about the time of the offering of the sacrifice that behold, underlined water came by the way of Edom, and the country was filled with water. So, the first result that we see when they took a step of faith and trusted God was that God used the miracle to meet their immediate need. God used the miracle to meet their immediate need. So, they called in Elisha and said, We need water. And so, God says, I will take care of you. I will send the water. I'm going to meet your needs. You just have to trust me. And so, they do that, and God meets their immediate need. He answers their prayer. But then, God does so much more than they even imagined He would do. It says in verse 21, Now, all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, and all who were able to put on armor and older were summoned and stood at the border. They rose early in the morning, and the sun shone on the water, and the Moabites saw the water opposite them and underlined as red as blood. Then they said, This is blood. The kings have surely fought together, and they have slain one another. Now, therefore, Moab to the spoil. The second result we see is that God used the miracle to confuse the enemy. God used the miracle to confuse the enemy. It says the Moabites wake up in the morning, they come over the mountain, they're getting ready to head into the valley and attack. And it says as the sun is rising into the valley, the reflection goes off of the water and it makes the water look like blood. Now they wouldn't have been expecting water at all. So when they come over there and they see this blood red liquid all over the place, they said, surely the kings have killed each other. These countries couldn't get along. They fought each other and killed each other. They said to Moab, be the spoil. So they drop their spears and they run in to loot the camp of the Israelites, the Edomites and of Judah. And so they're not prepared for war when they go in. The enemy is confused. And then in verse 24, here's the outcome. It says, but when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites arose and struck the Moabites so that they fled before them and they went forth into the land, slaughtering the Moabites. So the third result we see is that God used the miracle to give them the victory. God used the miracle to give them the victory. The thing I love about the ending of this story is that we see three kings that make a decision without God. They ask God, then come in and help us. And God shows up because they showed some faith, started digging trenches. But notice that God didn't just give them what they wanted. He gave them so much more because they chose to be faithful and trust God for the outcome. So they go and start digging trenches. God gives them the water. He uses the water to confuse the enemy. And then he gives them victory all because they chose to stand in faith. And today, as you leave here today, it's my hope that you are not only believing God, in the situation you're in, that he will move on your behalf and he will uh, take care of what needs to be taken care of, but that you're believing God for so much more than you can ask hope or imagine. One of my favorite verses is Ephesians 3.20. It says, now to him who is able to exceedingly abundantly above do all that we ask or think. God can do things that you aren't even thinking about today in your situation. You just have to take the first step. Maybe that's digging a trench and getting to work. God's calling you to take that step. And through that step of faith, he's gonna do way more than you could even imagine. But you have to put your reliance and dependence on him as Elijah points to them, and says, look, get to work, trust God with the outcome and he will bless you in return. Do we operate with a faith in a God that will do so much more, do exceedingly above in our situation? Are we operating in fear? Are we operating in the hope that he might? And this story is very evidently clear about the expectancy we should have of God moving on our behalf and blessing our situation, doing more than you can even think of today. For us who are following Jesus, it's a walk of faith that's an endless pursuit. You know, trying to be as faithful as possible and and overcoming those seeds of doubt that creep in. It's an endless pursuit of being like Jesus and growing in our faith. And for those of you who have not turned your life over to Jesus, that's your first step. This is the God that awaits you. It's not a God that wants to judge you for everything you've done wrong. It's a God that loves you, wants to forgive you, and wants to work and bless you in your situation. But you have to take that first step. All of us have steps to take. For some of us, it's bigger. Some of us, it's smaller. Some of us have to take that first step. But all of us have steps to take. Trust God with the outcome. Okay, don't trust in, in ourselves. Don't make your own plans. Seek him first and trust him for greater things you can even ask, hope, or imagine. Let's pray. Jesus, we're so grateful for your word and just the things that you constantly show us and encourage us and challenge us with. And God, we know that uh, while we seek you and all that we do, Father, that we all have uh, ways that we can grow. And so God, I just pray that today, each one of us leaves here with a step that you're calling us to take. God, that you are challenging us and encouraging us to take that step, that you're surrounding us with people that want us to help take that step as well. And so, God, I pray that these words don't, aren't just words that we listen to today, but, God, it's something we take to heart, that as we leave this place, we are continually seeking you, God, in whatever situation it is we face today. God, that we are trusting you with the outcome, that we are putting our faith 100% completely in you, just as Elisha did when he gave up everything to go and pursue your calling on his life. So God, I pray this week that you go before us, that you protect us, God, that you give us the opportunity to share the hope of Jesus with people this week as we go out into our community, Father. And God, I just pray in all that we do that we glorify you and bring you glory, honor, and praise. Jesus, thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. And God, we just pray that you'll go before us again this week. We love you and praise you in all that we do. It's in your name we pray, amen.